Indeed, as Joseph would say to his brothers, come near to me. Uh, Good afternoon again, everyone. It's great to be together. And uh, it's my desire this morning, this afternoon, to uh, bring to completion a series of messages that was begun a long time ago. I don't know when. A uh, year, more than a year ago, probably, on Second uh, Peter, chapter one. So, if we could just turn there, and this would be the the final message in this series about making every effort to add to supplement our faith with these seven qualities. And like every good list of seven, it ends on a powerful note, right? We know that seven is the number of completion in the Word, the number of perfection. And we were just looking in Revelation at that lamb with seven eyes, and seven horns that he's fully aware, fully capable. And so in this list of seven qualities, Peter is giving us, it ends on love. So let's just look one more time at our list in Second Peter chapter 1. starting in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This is the list of qualities, and and it ends on love. Think about how much love fills the heart of human beings. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. Love is a many-splendored thing. You turn the radio on, you can't listen for five minutes without hearing a, a song about love. At least it is trying to be a song about love. Many of the songs about love, and many of our thoughts about love are falling, fall way short, far short of the kind of love spoken of here. So we know that this word is agape. So how could we give a message or a sermon on agape? It's such a huge, all-encompassing characteristic of the Christian life, of the divine character itself. So really it's impossible to say, to say all that there is to say about love. But as I've been meditating on this passage and I've had a true desire for, for me, for my family, for us as believers to make every effort to add these things to our life, to build ourselves up in our most holy faith in these seven ways. I think how can we be more loving the kind of love that's described in Scripture? And as I've been walking through these messages over the past two minutes, how long, I've looked to Joseph as an example of someone who exemplifies 
these characteristics in a special way. And I think there's none of them that he exemplifies more perfectly and fully than love. Agape love. God-like love. And so he becomes a great subject case for us, you know, to look at. Um, In in order to to do this, I would like to, to consider, to finish our passage here in 2 Peter, and then to look at what the Lord himself says about love in Luke. And then turn to the example of, of Joseph. So that's the idea for this message uh, on making every effort to add love to our faith. That we could be more loving. Let's look at the rest of this passage in Second Peter. Because this is the key. This is the, you might say, the motivation. Or something that should be spurring us on. Not to just be armchair Christians sitting back and waiting for glory, but instead to be fervent in our faith, to be diligent in our the works that God has set out for us, and to be making every effort possible to be more of a loving people. And here's what he says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we've looked over these passages and we've looked over them. And one thing that I kind of missed as I was reading it is that Joseph is kind of here in these little passages. Do you remember the names of Joseph's two sons that he uh, received while he was in Egypt? Ephraim and Manasseh. And so uh, he, he called the name of his first son Manasseh. Why? Because it means forgotten, Right? It means forgotten. And interestingly enough, he said, I'm going to call him Manasseh because I have forgotten my father's house. But at the same time, every time he looks at his son, he sees, oh yeah, I've forgotten my father's house. So in a way, it's a way of remembering his father's house. And this notion of forgetting and remembering is right here in our passage. Because look at the kind of person that Peter wants us not to be. Peter does not want us to be the kind of nearsighted person who has forgotten that his sins were uh, forgiven. And we can be like that sometimes. We forget the wrong things. You know, we were actually, uh, I was thinking about this um, at the uh, Bible study down in uh, Fort Lauderdale where they were going through... um, Philippians, and when Paul says, forgetting what is behind and pressing on towards what is ahead. That's an interesting phrase, right? Forgetting what is behind, I press on. What is he forgetting? You know, oftentimes I hear those verses quoted as if to say, I forget all the bad things that have happened to me, and then I kind of move forward because those bad things can never get me down. But if you look at the passage, Paul here is forgetting his accolades. He's forgetting all the good things that he's done. 
that in the worldly sense would give him a, a feeling of righteousness. And I don't need to try very hard. I've already arrived in my faith. And Paul says, no, I forget those things. But you know one thing he never forgot? He never forgot that he was a sinner forgiven by Jesus Christ. And it only became more and more uh, fixed in his mind. You know, we've, we've talked oftentimes as you move through his life, he says, first I was the least of the apostles. And then later in a later letter, he says, I'm the least of believers. And then as he finally gets towards the end of his life, I, the chiefest of sinners. And so it's true that as believers, there's a lot of things we should forget. But we should never forget that we've been forgiven of our sins. And it's intricately tied into our ability to display these seven characteristics in our life. Because if we really believe and understand what we have been forgiven of, we will be a more loving people. That's just the way it works. If we try to forget forget all that bad stuff that's happened to us, push it out of the way, then we will be the kind of person who, when something bad, someone does something bad to us, will be like, oh, you know, uh, that gives me every right to not show love to that person. Because I forget all that I've been forgiven. And then lastly, we see his second son, Ephraim, of course, means twice fruitful, right? So here, here we have Peter telling us, don't let your life be ineffective or unfruitful. The kind of person that displays these characteristics will be just like Joseph, who we know experienced the fruitfulness of uh, his son Ephraim, but even more so, his father blessed him and said, you will be that fruitful bowel. Right? And maybe I should just read it instead of just trying to mangle it uh, from memory. Um, in that special blessing that he gives to Joseph, because there was a, I heard a beautiful message on this, and I didn't want to uh, to mess it up. Um, this is in Genesis uh, forty nine, as he's as Jacob is blessing all his sons, and he has this special thing to say about Joseph, and it's about fruit, right? And he says uh, in in Genesis forty nine, verse twenty two, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough. By a spring, and his branches run over the wall. Isn't that beautiful? I can't. For some reason, I'm forgetting where I heard this message. Uh, maybe one of you brothers gave it here, uh, but it's stuck in my mind that we would be like Joseph, a fruitful bough, but not just that we might be supplied, but the branches go over the wall, and all of a sudden, others are blessed. And this is exactly what happened with Joseph. He was blessed personally, but then he was obviously a blessing not only to his own brothers, but to the known world at the time. In a time of great famine, he became the source of great blessing. So, this is the promise for you and me. These two sons can be ours. Fruitfulness. Forgetting the right things and remembering the right things. That we might be a loving people. And so we just sang in the hymn, I wanted to read one verse from our hymn, when it says, Enemies were we, and rebels, ruined, wretched, and undone. Thou didst give from wrath to save us, for thy foes, thine only Son. Now, O joy beyond all telling, foes no more, but sons are we, 
children in a father's presence and blessed in him and loved as he. If we want to understand what love looks like, we have to look to God. If we want to understand what real love is, we have to look at the way God treats his enemies. So the last message in this series was on brotherly affection. And this is that, that warmth and that welling up of affection and emotion that we feel towards our brethren, towards our brothers, towards our sisters, towards our family. It's in a heavily emotional type of love. And pretty much this is as close as the world gets to talking about love. Love makes you feel good. Love is something that is rewarding instantly, right? Because you just, you're in love, you fall in love, you're out of control, you can't hold back. It's this overwhelming of emotion. But Peter leaves behind brotherly affection and now moves, as all the Bible writers do, to a new word to talk about a new thing, which is agape. And the best way to think about what agape is and in what way is it different is to think about how do you treat your enemies. They, your heart doesn't bubble over when they come in the room. This is not an emotion that kind of overwhelms you and you just can't help but smile and you just do anything for them. This is the test of love. How do you treat your enemies? So if we, before we look at Joseph, because for Joseph it's the difference between Benjamin and the children of Leah. Right? The sons of Leah. And so that's what we'll see in his story. But before we get there, I just wanted to look at Luke 6 to see the Lord Jesus speaking of love. These are familiar verses, but it's never wrong to read the words of the Lord. Um, we could, until we have them memorized, let's keep reading them, right? Um, this is in Luke 6, and verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? That's a very interesting sentence. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, 
even as your Father is merciful. I mean, that is the, that's the love chapter right there. That is the definition of love. Because you can imagine as he was saying these words, the cross was going through his mind. Right? As he was saying these words, the sovereign Lord of all creation was thinking, you don't know yet what I'm going to do to define this love for you, but it's coming. And so he knew what it means to say, I love you. Do we? Have we gotten there yet? And we have to say, no, I'm not there yet. I need to be diligent. I need to make every effort to add love to my faith. I want to be more loving. I want to be more like this description. It's high above where I am now. But I want to strive to be more like this. I want to see the places in my life where I have a lack of love and I want to say, get out of there. I want to do everything I can to move away from that old man. And I want to strive to be more like my Lord who even those who would nail Him to the cross, He was forgiving even as it happened. And this is our standard. We need to be more like this. So if you think about love, you know, and what what does love look like? Let's go ahead and turn now to Joseph. What practical ways are there that we might become more like this? More like the Lord Jesus? Because of course Joseph is only an example insofar as he uh, images forth the Lord Jesus. So he's not perfect. There's only one person who was perfect. I'm going to start in 37. Genesis 37. He's not perfect, but in many ways he's a picture of the Lord Jesus. And so as we see him loving the brothers that hated him, then we begin to learn how to love. You know, I think of that uh, lawyer who would come to the Lord and say, who is my neighbor? We never see anyone... And scriptures say, who is my enemy? You know, I, I think of the listeners to the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And he says, love your enemies. And I, I imagine some cocky person standing up and say, who is my enemy? Let me figure out who it is that I need to love. But we know. You know, our enemies are all around us. You know, if I would ask that question to you, who is my enemy? The Lord wants me to love my enemies. Who exactly is he talking about? Is he talking about those terrorists in Paris that are maybe threatening my life? Is he talking about kind of all those liberals in the government that are messing our country up? Who exactly is my enemy? You know, I think, you may think I'm wrong, but I think that our enemy can sometimes be the closest person to us. You know, I remember as a child, like when you live in a house you're really close to those people. And when there's few resources, you kind of turn from friends to enemies. I remember sitting at the table across from my brother, and there's one biscuit left, and that's where the rubber meets the road. And we just, we die for it. If I get it, he doesn't. If he gets it, I don't. This is what it means to be an enemy. The enemy wants what is best for himself and what is best for him if what is best for himself is not what is best for you 
This is the core of enmity. So sometimes we like to think of an enemy as that person out there that wishes us harm and that hates us. But sometimes the closest person to you can act or play the role of the enemy. You know, if you're in a marriage, for example, you know, sometimes you get really upset with that spouse. They're the ones whose head you butt heads with the most because you are with them the most. You're pursuing the same goals. And sometimes it's that person that you're just like, it's not that you hate them, but you're just like, oh, if only I could um, get them to see my way. If, if only they would do what I want them to do instead of what they want. You know, you got the remote and they've got the, it, I want the remote. I want to watch the news. No, I want to watch America's top model. That's the source of enmity. In other words, wanting what you want rather than what the other one wants. Now, in a practical sense, we experience much more enmity from the people that are close to us than any terrorist in uh, the Middle East than we'll ever experience from them. So let's not confuse ourselves by thinking about that as being our enemy. Can we love the person closest to us when they're not treating us like a lover should? That's really what I think the, when Jesus' words become practical. When your spouse speaks to you disrespectfully, can you turn the other cheek? You know, we're so worried about the person who hates Christians and they're trying to kill Christians, we can't even love that person, the one that's dearest to us. So I think as we think about love and becoming more loving, let's start there. Let's love those who are right in our face, right in front of us, to a higher level. And so I just want to talk about some of the things that Joseph does for these brothers. So like I said, the sons of Leah uh, have a very different relationship with them than his own true brother, Benjamin. They hate him, right? The first thing we see about this kind of love, it seeks the enemy. Love seeks the enemy. So if you look at 37, and there's this beautiful little, it's almost a metaphor of what the Lord does for us in Genesis 37. And he, uh, verse 12, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. He said to them, here I am. So he said to them, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the um, valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. He sought them out. These that hated him, he was bringing them food. This is what the Lord did. The Lord sought us out. Lord, thy love has sought and found us, wandering in a desert wide. Are you seeking out your enemy? Are you seeking out your spouse? Think about when you're in conflict with them. Think about when the weather's bad in your house. It'll gaul mishil. Right? That's the Arabic 
form, right? Gal Mishilo. The weather's bad. There's a storm in your house. Right? Who seeks out whom in that situation? Do you seek them out or do you wait to be sought out? This is what love looks like. Love seeks the enemy. Love goes to the one and tries to find and tries to reconcile and tries to uh, uh, mend. This needs to be how we are defined. If there's conflict in the meeting, do you sit back and wait for that brother who offended you to call you and say, I'm not calling them if they don't call me and I don't call them and I don't call me. And And we just go back to the playground. Right? We go black, back to the elementary school playground and we act like little children. And the Lord is telling us to act like men, to act like women, to act like Him and seek out those who have done us wrong and say, let's reconcile. Let's reconcile. Love seeks the enemy. So then you have this long history and then finally His brothers are coming back to Him. And then we find that love supplies the enemy. So go to Genesis um, 44, but we can, of course, summarize a lot of what happens. But love supplies the enemy. Love gives to the enemy. This is the opposite of what feels right. If you'll remember, um, this is actually in, at the end of Genesis 43, and the brothers are all sitting there, and these are foreigners to Egypt. And he gives them from his own table. Right? These ones that sold him into slavery, he supplies their need. Can we even supply the need of that one who's close to us, who's wronged us? We withhold, don't we? We withhold. That's how we punish them. Can we supply their need? And of course, like we looked at last time, Benjamin's portion was bigger. <laughs> it's five times bigger. That's all right. You know, you, you feel differently towards some people. That's fine. But are you going to love those who uh, don't love you? Look at the very end of this book and you see the same thing. Because in the, at the very end, in chapter 50, it says, um, you remember his brothers are very worried. And... Uh, Just one verse, we'll come back to this chapter 50, but just verse 21, do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. I will provide for you and your little ones. Love supplies the enemy. And like I said, this is a counterintuitive move. Let's just, you can keep your finger in Genesis, but let's just look at Romans 12. Romans 12 is another great place to go for practical love that we, that we show towards others. Love towards the brotherhood, but also love towards uh, those who are not necessarily uh, wishing us well. And so it's not that I want to say your spouse is really your enemy, but I just want to make sure that everybody understands what I mean. There are times where everyone in our lives plays can play the role of enemy. And this is really where our love is tested. Not where there's this nice equal exchange and I pat you on your back and you pat me on my back. I bring you flowers, you cook me dinner. This is a beautiful picture, but you can see it's an economic exchange. I bring you flowers, but I get a nice dinner out of it, right? You give me dinner and you get a nice bouquet of flowers out of it. 
This is love, sure. But when the rubber meets the road, when there's conflict and there, people are playing the role of enemy, when your child is playing the role of enemy in your home, I want what I want, I don't want what you want, can you love with this Christ-like love at those times? So I just wanted to look at Romans 12 because it tells us a little bit about this strategy of feeding your enemy. So um, in Romans 12, it says, uh, we'll just pick it up in 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, right? He never says that by accident. When we see beloved, it's never by accident. You who are loved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heat burning coals in his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so here we see, and this is lived out in Joseph's experience, if you remember. He gave them money. He put the money back in their sacks. He gave them all the food that they needed, right? And they felt conviction about their sin. You remember that? This is what's going to happen when you love that one who's not acting like a lover toward you. They will be convicted of their own sin. It's not your job to convict that person of their sin. That's God's job. Your job is to love, and the coals will be heaped on. I'm not saying do it for that reason, but we can trust God to handle your spouse's sin, your child's sin. We need to show love because it is a strategy towards reunification and reconciliation. Because as we pour out love, the, the person in the wrong becomes more and more convict. And this is why love is not only supplying the enemy, but love sanctifies the enemy. Isn't that beautiful? There's a picture in the scripture about how a believer sanctifies his or her family. And one of the reasons is, is because they are setting them apart because they are showing them what love looks like. Not everyone gets that picture so close, right? So are you willing to sanctify your enemy, to provide for their needs, that, they, that God might be able to use that in their life to bring glory to himself, right? As they see this is what true love is, and I'm so far from it, and I break down, and then God can really do his work. So love seeks out the enemy. Love supplies the enemy. Love even sanctifies the enemy. But I think the most, the clearest picture that we see of love, and the most important one, and the one that comes from our hymn, 191, love sets the enemy free by forgiving them. Forgiveness is the most beautiful picture of love that we can imagine. Forgiveness, when you forgive someone, it's like you're opening the cage and letting them out. And we are slow to forgive. That's just the way we're wired. We're wired like uh, with, that, with that sin in us. We want what we want and we don't want anyone to uh, get in our way. And if somebody gets in our way, I remember uh, I was listening to Trump talk about his greatest weakness. <laughs> Donald Trump. And that's what he said his greatest weakness was. He says, when somebody does me wrong, I never forgive. I never forgive them. 
and I never forget. And so I think Trump is right. I think he, I think there's a little Trump in all of us, you know. We're slow to forgive. We hold tightly to the wrongs that have been done us. And this is not, it's nowhere more true than in married couples. Are you holding something over your spouse that they've done to you in the past? It's time to set them free. It's time to forgive. Set them free with forgiveness. Look at the the beautiful picture there, and we can conclude with this in Genesis 50. Because you remember, he forgave them already. He said, don't worry, and they broke down and they had this party. But they lived several years after that in Goshen. And they, they, they weren't sure. They doubted it. Right? But, and so when Jacob died, they came trembling, uh, to Joseph. I'll just read this passage starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the enemy that we did to him. Do you see the econ- economy going on here? This is what they deserved. They deserved the wages of their sin is death. And so they think, maybe we're going to get what we deserve and He's going to pay us back. But think of the Lord, right? The economy of the Lord is very different. Somebody takes your cloak, you give them something else. I mean, it's completely the opposite of the natural way of thinking, of the human way of thinking, right? And He says, uh, in 16, they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. I don't know whether this is true or not. I doubt it. I think they made this up. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. If we want to be more loving, let's start with, let's take an inventory. What sins am I keeping record of? Who am I holding it over? My my spouse, my uh, person at work that wronged me, I'm not going to work quite as hard for that boss because they overlooked me that one time and they don't deserve it. And We get into that economic mindset, tit for tat. I do this, you do this. Let's break free from that mentality and let's set the sinner free by forgiving them. This can be our legacy. This can be our fruitfulness as we live in this scene that we might be able to grow in love, to be diligent, to add love, to our faith, to our our confession of faith, that God may be glorified and that His kingdom could even spread here in this scene. For His name's sake.